welcome to this third webinar in our 2022 Science and Life series on rare diseases, entitled Where Hope Knocks, Personalized Therapies in Rare Diseases. I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science. Back in April this year, we kicked off our 2022 series on rare diseases. In the first webinar, we talked about who the stakeholders are that need to be involved to have the greatest impact on rare diseases. In the second webinar, we focused on one type of stakeholder, innovation hubs and centers of excellence or expertise. Today, we're turning our attention to the unique challenges and opportunities in rare, treating rare diseases, particularly the use of orphan drugs and cutting edge treatments like gene therapy, and how the concept of personalized medicine intersects with the rare disease field. Finally, thank you to Foundation Ipsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. I'd now like to take the opportunity to welcome our wonderful panel today. I'll give them each a chance to introduce themselves. And I'm going to start with Dr. Tina Irv, a returning panelist uh, who's joining us, who joined us uh, for our first webinar in this series uh, about a year ago. So thank you so much for coming into the studio, Tina. Oh, happy to. Thank you for having me. So my name is Tina Irv. I work at the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, at the institute called NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Science and I work in the office, formerly known as the Office of Rare Disease Research, recently renamed the, Di the Division of Rare Disease Research Innovation. That's a mouthful. <laughs> it certainly is. Great, well thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Uh, next up we have Janine Winslow who is joining us from California. Welcome Janine. Oh, thank you, and thank you very much for inviting me to join you on this panel. Um, my name is Janine Winslow. I am the founder and CEO of Chameleon Biosciences, and at Chameleon, we focus on treating rare diseases, rare genetic diseases, and I've married my background in immunology with gene therapy to develop a technology that allows us to treat more patients and address um, a broader range of different types of diseases. Great, thank you so much, Janine. Uh, and finally, from Italy, a warm welcome to Dr. Dr. Viviana Gianuzzi. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Viviana. Thank you for inviting me uh, as a panelist of this webinar dedicated to rare diseases. My name is Viviana, a regulatory and ethical expert in the rare disease field. I coordinated the research department of the Benzi Foundation, a not-for-profit research organization based in Italy. I mainly work as researcher in European collaborative projects on pediatric and rare diseases and medicine development, like EJPRD, um, the European Joint Programme for Rare Diseases, C4C, and other ones. I'm also a rare disease patient, and uh, I'm part of a patient association of rare tumors, Bottega del Sorriso, based in Italy as well. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Viviana. Um, so jumping right in, what I'd like to do is just reiterate uh, some of the comments that we made in the description for this webinar uh, in the abstract. Um, standard models for drug development um, don't work particularly well for rare diseases and treatments for common diseases are frequently repurposed for rare diseases and these include often drugs that don't have a disease but have been developed in, by pharmaceutical agencies and essentially put on the shelf 
um, for you, potential use later. Um, but new drug design methods are now enabling the development of more individualized therapies for small groups or for uh, even single patients. So the first question I'd like to put to all of you is to get your definition of uh, precision medicine or personalized medicine and what it means in reality to a patient. So uh, Viviana, maybe I could start with you. Yes, thank you. Um, precision medicine has not a unique definition, but with personalized medicine, we have a therapeutic strategy tailored to an individual patient, the right person at the right time, on the basis of its gene, lifestyle, and environment. This is the theory. Uh, I should say that uh, rare diseases are the right place to develop precision and personalized medicines, where we have sometimes really one patient in a country or in a region. So, um, and possibly precision medicine, personalized medicine, represents the unique opportunity for a patient to be treated or even to be diagnosed because we to have a right diagnosis to have the right treatment um yeah i just say that um we really need lots of efforts to develop this kind of medicines because it still represent even today a challenge for researchers, for companies, and as well as for institution and medicines agency evaluators. Thank you. Right, Janine, maybe we can have you next. Sure. Um, I work on, I'd say, um, more uh, precision rather than individualized medicines. I work on uh, gene therapy um, and specifically gene replacement therapy. And that means that we um, can treat a genetic disease that's generally caused by a defect in the patient's own gene by supplying that patient with a correct version of the gene. And uh, this is this field has been um, around, it's relatively new. And although it's, we've been making great strides, investigators and clinicians, and um, we focus exclusively on rare diseases for many, many reasons. Um, it's a way to help people that have no hope, that have no, absolutely nothing else. And it's also a way for us to, uh, get input from regulators from the FDA and European regulators about our technologies um, in an accelerated manner, if you will. And I, I think it's a very, very important space to be working in. It's where we um, can make the most progress with novel technologies and sort of cutting edge, if you will, uh, technologies. And so, and for that reason, I, for most of my career, have been working exclusively in the rare disease space. And, um, you know, from a drug development perspective, because that's what 
we do in treating rare diseases. We're developing genetic medicines. Um, the challenge is quite often uh, to get specific showing clinical efficacy. And this is a challenge in general in the rare disease uh, uh, space. Um, some of these diseases can take years to um, manifest. They can also take um, you know, a year or two or more to show improvement in the condition. And our drug development models, the way that our regulators assess whether or not a drug is working, working in clinical trials, um, we, don't, we don't have that long. Um, our current system doesn't allow for slow, steady, continued progress in improving a patient's health. So that's something that, um, uh, particularly in rare diseases, regulators can work with us to develop new models, if you will, new ways to analyze clinical data so that we can start to bring treatments for uh, patients um, even when the total number of patients that would have that particular type of disease are, are very, very small. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you, Janine. You, you touched on a number of, of uh, topics that I'm, I'm really keen to come back to. Um, so thank you for that. Um, but first, let me, let me come to Tina and, and ask you your take on precision medicine. And also, I'd, I'd like to create the distinction or, or define the distinction between what Janine was saying, where she said she works more in precision than personalized or individualized medicine. So if you could help the audience understand what, what that difference is. So I, I guess if you, if you look at precision medicine, what I think of precision medicine is I, I imagine if we're treating a disease, you're looking at a target and you want to get right at the target. And when um, you're looking at a disease that has a large number of patients, you have a large cohort of people that you're doing the clinical trial with and you try to find the best drug for the most people. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, with rare diseases, you don't have that big number of people. Mm -hmm. And you also get the people who that drug doesn't work for. And it's just, you, you, you aren't finding that exact hit for that individual. So that's what I think of when precision mm -hmm. medicine is like, you're, you're looking at something that hits a specific target. The personalized medicine, I, I think of more as an individual, mm -hmm. and that's the the N of one trials, for example, where you only have one patient. Um, I, I think that it's important that we're using personalized and precision medicine because in a lot of the rare diseases, you have someone, you, you do a clinical trial, and you have a lot of people who respond, but then you have a group of people that it doesn't work for. Mm -hmm. And what you really need to go back and look at is why is it not working for those people, and why is it working for some people? Mm -hmm. So it's more personalized when you're looking at those individuals, and I think of more precision when you're targeting something specific rather than targeting um, a symptom. Mm -hmm. You know, you're targeting where the disease comes from and how it starts and what causes it, as opposed to a symptom that is, you know, you have pain, you have fatigue. Mm -hmm. So, and am I correct that when you're looking, uh, when you're doing more personalized medicine, you're also looking at the individual's genetic background and exactly. other factors, and you don't necessarily do that in precision medicine. Exactly. Okay. So you're you're really looking at the individual and why you know, what, what their gene 
genotype or their gene makeup is, and that helps you understand why they may be responding while somebody else doesn't. You look at the differences between the people. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so you mentioned, uh, uh, Tina, right there, um, N of one clinical trials. Um, so maybe you could talk quickly to that, and then Janine, I, I, I think this might be a topic that you could speak to as well, since I think this is possibly something that you do. So you could quickly define that for sure. us. Sure. Um, generally, what you have when you do a clinical trial is you have a large number of people, and you have a comparison group. One person gets a drug, one person doesn't get the drug. In an N of one trial, and my colleagues here can correct me <laughs> if I'm wrong, you basically have one person, mm. and they're they get the drug and then they may have a period where they're not getting the drug and then they may get the drug again. Mm. There's various different models, but they're their own comparator group. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the simplest way of putting it. Great. Uh, Janine, I'd love to get your input as well. Uh, sure. So um, in our clinical trial sizes are not necessarily an N of one, they're more like an N of 15, mm -hmm. um, which is a very, still a very, very small number. Typically for a standard drug, you'd have hundreds of patients enrolled in your first clinical trial. And the, the way that, that we assess whether or not a drug is working is very much based on statistical relevance with those large numbers of people. And it's much easier to show when you've got access to, for example, hundreds of people. So the challenge is how do you show um, meaningful significance when you, when you don't have the luxury of, of hundreds of people? And this is a, a road or a path, if you will, that's being paved as we speak for gene therapies. Um, I think it's very much an evolving, evolving um, conversation. And you know, the, the overriding goal um, by regulators is to ensure that drugs A work and B are safe. And so um, the challenge is how do we do that with N of one or N of 15. Um, and you hit on something that um, is very important when you're working with these very small patient populations. And that is that the patients are their own comparators. So for example, um, for an N of, uh, N means the number of patients in a, in a clinical trial of 10 or 15, um, sometimes we'll often do a study it's called a run-in study where we monitor um, the patients and measure um, looking at the tests we're going to use to determine whether or not the drug is working. We call it clinical endpoints. And so what we do is show what these endpoints are in each individual patient before they've been given the drug and compare it to what's happening after. So that's one way that um, we're able to show that these drugs are safe and effective, even with really low numbers of patients. Um, and my particular field has a twist um, with, with gene therapy because the current technology, the, it's, I think of it as a first generation version, can only give him, be given to a patient once. And, um, 
and this is because the immune response to the drugs and each patient will respond differently to that drug. Our technology finds a way to deal with the immune response to the drug to reduce it so that we no longer are limited to just one dose. We can give more than one and we can monitor the patients and give them as much as they need to be sure that uh, the gene we're replacing is working at a functional therapeutic level. So um, I'll pause there mm -hmm. and because I'll I could say a whole lot more. <laughs> Great, thank you, Janine. Uh, Viviana, do you want to add anything? Yes, thank you, Sean. I, I think that we touched um, two key uh, topics um, strictly linked to innovation. One is the way to develop a medicine. As Janine said, gene therapies, so um, as a way of personalized medicine. And in this context, we need the full acceptance of regulators in order to really have this opportunity for patients on the market, because we need to demonstrate regulators that our product, even if innovative, even if test in a relatively small number of patients, is efficacious and safe and of quality, of course. We also have um, innovative new methodologies, research methodologies like the N01 clinical trial design. We also have lots of other new trial and um, trial design that are alternative to the classic randomized clinical trials that needs lots of patients that in the rare disease fields often is maybe impossible some in some cases impossible to reach even in this case we need that the acceptance from regulators from the regulatory medicine agency the acceptance that our the met, the new methodology is enough is okay to provide data that ensure that patient can have a good product for them. So we really need to implement all, everything that is new with regards to the, the way to develop medicine, but also the way to test medicine that are fully accepted, not only from one agency, but all over the world we need to address lots of institutions, lots of agencies to prove that our product is okay for patients. Thank you. So I just wanted to add to that, Vivian brought up a really good point is there are a lot of other technologies and one of the things we talk about at NCATS and NIH a lot is that there are over 7,000 rare diseases and if we were to do personalized and precision medicine for every individual with a rare disease, that would take forever. Hmm. So what, what they're really working on are these technologies or different models like platform models for example, where you could do, you look at patients that have commonalities 
um, in the disease. And you can do things either called basket trials or mm -hmm. umbrella trials. Basket trials are where you have one treatment and you have a lot of different people with similarities and you see who that works best for. Mm -hmm. So you're not having to do an individual trial for each one of those people, but you have a group that you think that that drug or that treatment has a pretty good chance of working for, and you try it on all of them to see who it works best on. Mm -hmm. Another one is the umbrella trial where you have that one patient and you kind of, I think of it as bombarding it with raindrops. <laughs> mm. you, you try a lot of different treatments on that one individual to see if that works. So, so we really need to think out of the box of, of how traditional clinical trials have been done in order to work in the rare disease space. Mm -hmm. yeah, it sounds to me like um, the, the you know, as we talked about at the beginning, the standard ways of doing things are not really working for rare diseases. And what needs to happen is we need to find new and innovative, innovative ways to do things. But also, we're going to need to push the regulators to catch up with the research and the way the, the new methodologies. Um, and I think that seems to be something of a stumbling block is to, to because regulations take a while to change. Yeah. Um, it's sometimes slow moving. Um, but this is, it's fantastic that there are people out there in the rare disease space that are doing this. And I'm of the opinion that it is this area of rare diseases that's really gonna push medicine forward for everybody. I think they're using some of these ideas in the cancer research, and mm. that's helping. That really helps the rare disease people say, well, you have a precedent in cancer. Mm. Why can't we do it with our rare diseases? It's very similar. Mm -hmm. so. Great. So um, coming to, to the next question, I wanted to talk a, a little bit about genome sequencing and, and one of the techniques that's, that's used. And Janine, since um, this might be an area of particular interest for you. Maybe you could talk to this first. Um, I'm interested to know how widespread uh, genome sequencing is, uh, what type of, of methodologies are available. I know that some that do exome sequencing, some that do whole genome sequencing. Obviously, there's cost issues involved. But sort of broadly, how widespread is this? How affordable is it? And how often is it, is it helpful? Um, it, it's now, uh, genome sequencing is now very widespread. And, and when I say genome sequencing, I'm not referring to sequencing the entire genome of something. I'm talking about sequencing the part of interest, the part that you're working with. And, um, and I've been in this field for a long time. I used to do, uh, we refer to it more as DNA sequencing. I used to do that 35 years ago by hand and we now have machines that do everything. And all the chemistries, the reactions, everything is completely different now. Um, so it's, it's um, genome sequencing is like a, a workhorse that, um, uh, supports the development of rare disease drugs, um, anywhere from cancer to rare genetic diseases like those that I work on. Uh, you know, we've used genome sequencing to figure out why one patient, for example, will respond to a cancer drug and another patient with the same type of tumor won't. So we've used 
genome sequencing to dive more deeply into different types of diseases and try to correlate on a DNA level um, uh, how to help particular patients respond better to a drug or a type of drug. And it, it used to be much more expensive genome sequencing. And you remember when they celebrated um, sequencing the entire human genome, um, you know, it's come so far even since then that it, it's relatively inexpensive. Uh, and uh, we can sequence, you know, very large amounts of DNA in, um, in a fraction of the time that we used to be able to. So it has changed quite a bit and it's changed for the better um, to make this a, now a very common tool that we can use to better understand a, a patient's particular disease and why or why not they might be responding better you know than another or or worse than another patient in the same clinical trial mm -hmm. um so viviana I, I wanted to come to you for your comments um i also wanted to to touch on something that janine mentioned and maybe you can address this and she talked about sequencing specific regions of the genome and not so you you're not trying to sequence an entire genome or even the, the exome, which is the, the parts of the genome that are translated into proteins. But my question is, how do you know which part of the genome to look at in order to find that answer? Uh, it's difficult to me having a basic knowledge um, where as clinical genetists. But what I would like to say about the great variability that we still have in this field is that more and more countries agree are implementing genome sequencing. Um, just to, to answer to your question, um, more and more specific to a disease or a gene. Um, but let's also um, think about the prenatal and newborn screening, mm. where we have a specific test to only a part of the genome. The, the point is that even if more and more countries are implementing genome sequencing, um, the, the majority of countries, in the majority of the countries, these new technologies are not yet integrating into the routine clinical practice. So the only way that patients in this region can access to genome sequencing uh, both for uh, treatment aim, as you said, but also um, to a diagnostic aim, is in the context of research programs or participating in research activities as the only option also to get a diagnosis for unsolved cases. This is true even if the costs have dramatically reduced over the years, as Janine said. And even in this case, we have great variability. As far as I know, in the US, we have $1,000 maybe for uh, a genome test. But for example, in, in the European Union, in Europe, uh, it has been demonstrated um, 
um, recently that the cost is four times higher than um, the cost in the, in the US. So um, just to point out that we have this great opportunity, both for diagnosis and therapy treatment aim, but with still great variability across. Yes, thank you. Um, so, to to pick up on one of the points that you made, Viviana, about the the um, it, the difficulty in finding a diagnosis sometimes um, if it's not picked up by say neonatal screening or it's not a, a disease that has been seen before or is extremely rare. Um, there is a term that is often used, which is the diagnostic odyssey, where the patient sort of launches into this, this odyssey together with their family of trying to find out what the issue is. And, and I know that there's huge difficulties with this. There are doctors that maybe will, not, will, will tell patients that it's not a real disease, you know, they're imagining it. Um, so Tina, I'll, I know that this is something you deal with frequently, so maybe you could talk about the diagnostic odyssey, and then I'd like to also go a little bit further and talk about the, the potential treatment odyssey. Yeah, I, I actually like that term, treatment odyssey, mm -hmm. as well. So the diagnostic odyssey um, is something that families go through. And I myself am not a, a patient or a family with a rare disease, but I spend a lot of time talking to the families and to patients with rare diseases and hearing their stories. Mm -hmm. And what you hear over and over and over again is they just want to know what's causing it and that's the first thing they want to know what what is wrong with my child or what is wrong with me because that's a big relief they often say once they find out however it can take between five between three and eight years with the average of five years to get a diagnosis and in that time they're usually seen by at least seven different doctors um, so the the model we have now is you go to your primary care physician if they can't figure it out they they spend a little time trying to diagnose you if that doesn't work out they send you to the next person if that doesn't work out they send you to the next specialist so what's really needed is more of a centralized place that you know if you can't be diagnosed in X amount of time you should be sent to a broader team of people that look at look at um, you from multiple different directions you know the neurological the the digestive mm. you know just different reasons of why you could be having these problems but the the patients are really just looking first for an answer and a lot of times you'll hear the, the family say okay at least I have a name for it now I know that I'm I'm not making it up or the doctor mm is is not ignoring me anymore mm -hmm. and with the treatment you know once you get a name for your disease then you go on the treatment journey mm -hmm. and there there's no guarantees and you know we encourage people family groups are often participating in patient advocacy and raising money for treatments and it can be very frustrating because they're raising money for treatments that isn't going to help their own child but it will be helping a child maybe five years down the line or 10 years down the line. Um, I, I think that, you know, Vivian mentioned um, newborn screening as a way, and it's one of the things we've had a lot of discussions about is doing whole genome sequencing or sequencing in general at an earlier time to pick up some of these disorders mm -hmm. to find targeted 
treatments or e at least put them into a pool where they could be found for targeted treatments to occur. Because unless you're living you know, in Boston, San Francisco, New right. York, right next to a research hospital, the chances of you finding that right clinician who's doing research on that very specific rare disease is not very good. So there's really a, a problem with equity in, you know, where you live, where you're at, you know, what kind of insurance you may have in even finding those treatments. So there's, there, there's a lot of things in the pipeline that need to be addressed before we can get a smooth <laughs> route of treatment for the patients. Right. And we, we did actually speak in our previous webinar about centers of excellence, which is yeah. one possible solution, and also the rise in telemedicine, right. so that people in remote locations can visit these centers of excellence remotely. I think, I think that's great, but the other thing with, with um, the variants in genes that you find when you do sequencing, you find a variant, you don't necessarily have an answer for it, and you might go to a center of excellence, but they may not know what to do with it. Mm. It's some research researcher somewhere else that mm. would would have the information. And having more centralized information, I would say across the U.S. and the the world in general, of hey, we're finding these variants. This is what it's looking like. Hey, I have a patient. Let's match them up. It's it's that information and communication that right. needs to take place so you can match the patient with the treatment. Because there might be a treatment that they don't have the right patient for, but it's a matter of doing right. that matchmaking that would be really important. Great. Um, Viviana, thoughts from your side? Thank you, Jean. Yeah, just a few comments about um, the family, the involvement of families and of children. Given, uh, when we have a genetic or an inherited disease, we have, uh, of course, a stronger um, involvement of families. Uh, we need to collect data, uh, the medical history, not only from the patient, but also for, from the family that might be involved as well. And we have children, so for them, the diagnosis is even more difficult if we have a genetic diagnosis, we have our panel and our test saying what is the disease. But if you would like to have the clinical diagnosis that is still possible in the rare disease field, then we have the incapability of children, the, the, the youngest one, to express their pain, discomfort, the feeling, and so on. So these elements are even crucial to have a diagnosis for them. We have for them also ethical and uh, other, not only the methodological issues that I mentioned, but also the ethical issues. So we have um, to implement genetic counseling and the involvement of families with a particular attention when dealing with children. Thank you. Thanks, Viviana. Um, Janine, I'd like to come to you next uh, to, to start talking about some of the treatment options. Um, so I, I first wanted to get your thoughts on the, the treatment odyssey that we, we were just talking about. And then if you could also speak a little bit more about the, the gene-based treatments that you are, are looking at, at at your company, um, and particularly the, the viability of, of these as a uh, a, more, a broader treatment uh, for rare diseases. So, you know, things are quite specific at the moment. As you said, it's quite a new area. 
But is this something that you believe will be viable for uh, to treat more broadly rare diseases across the world? Yeah, sure. Um, first, about the treatment um, odyssey or the diagnosis odyssey. Um, it, it is an issue with rare diseases, partly because of the definition of a rare disease. There aren't many people who have them. Physicians aren't used to seeing patients come with this set of symptoms. And so, you know, that makes it tough in itself. And I really like what Tina said about um, uh, setting up some sort of guidelines. You know, if you have not figured out a cause within a certain amount of time, you need to start looking into some of these other rare diseases as potential causes. Um, the the other key factor to that is that with rare genetic diseases, a lot of times uh, the most severe diseases affect children and infants predominantly. And in those cases, we believe that, you know, investigators and clinicians believe that um, treating them as soon as possible is crucial before they've started to accumulate some of the damage that could be done by a given disease in other parts of their body. Um, that is all very dependent on newborn screening and pa uh, parents of children with rare diseases have been tremendous advocates of getting newborn screening developed and then getting it implemented. And it's it's very complex in the United States because each state has a different panel that they use for newborn screening. So um, you could be in one state and be lucky enough to have caught a disease because it's on that state's panel. But if you live in another state, it may go undiagnosed, as Tina said, for years potentially. Um, so to do the most good, we need to catch these diseases um, as soon as possible, and we need to treat the children as soon as possible. Um, so again, uh, access to information and sharing of information and moving away from this model where each state has its own testing policy. You know, it should be universal. All these children deserve access to all the latest genetic testing because if they they are you know unfortunate enough to have been born with a severe genetic disease um they deserve to know what it is no matter where they live in the country right um so then to comment on our particular technology um i i had explained earlier that we work on gene therapy. We treat diseases that are caused by a defect in a gene. And just to illustrate, um, the most common one that um, almost everybody knows about is hemophilia. Uh, hemophilia is caused by a defect in a gene that, that makes a clotting factor that's needed to clot blood. So people with hemophilia um, can have a defect in, in one or two of the genes involved in that clotting um, process. And uh, that was also the first disease, I believe, to be treated with gene therapy. And so um, 
what clinicians and, and researchers have shown is we can uh, supply the correct version of those clotting factors to patients' cells. Um, those cells start to make the corrected version of the gene and then the disease symptoms can be reversed. So it can work very, very well. There's two drugs on the market. Uh, one is Luxturna, which restores sight in a genetic form of blindness that affects children. Um, there's another one um, that was developed by a company called Avexis to treat ex, uh, excuse me, spinal muscular atrophy. And in this particular case, children who are born with that disease don't live often. Uh, beyond two years and what we've been able to do or what they've been able to do using gene therapy is to provide the correct version of the, the gene that causes that disease. And in, in some patients then they've not only survived but gone on to grow and thrive. Mm -hmm. So our goal at, at my company is to uh, be able to do that for all children within a clinical trial, not just the ones that it happens to work best in. And uh, what investigators have found, and, and this research has been ongoing for, um, gene therapy has been around probably for 30 years, if not a little more. And more recently, we're starting to discover uh, why in some patients it works very well, in some patients uh, it works less well. and at least for gene replacement therapy, we're finding um, it has to do with the immune response to the drug. And so the immune response generated by each individual patient can have an effect on how well that drug works for that particular patient. And what my company has been working on is a way to neutralize, if you will, that immune response so that we optimize um, the, the efficacy or how well a drug works for more patients. And um, one last thing very quickly, it, you know, the idea that we can't treat all patients for gene therapy, this has to do again with the immune response. Um, and it has to do with the particular way that a lot of the gene therapies are done, and that is by using a, a gutted virus that becomes a shuttle to shuttle a correct version of a gene into patient cells. And, um, you know, we've been working on this long enough, investigators have been working on this for long enough that we're, we've got these very safe modified viruses. We know they're very safe to give to people. Um, but they're a virus and, and our patients' immune systems um, don't see it as any other virus. And you know, even if we've gutted it and put a good gene in it, um, patients' immune systems don't know that it's a good gene and so they still attack it. Mm -hmm. And so some patients will have been exposed to that virus previously, excuse me, which means they'll have developed antibodies to it. Those patients can't even be treated with or in the past haven't been able to be treated with gene therapy. Um, our technology is overcoming that um, so that we can safely treat these patients that might have antibodies to the particular 
shuttle virus we're using. And then once we do, um, so far our research is very early. It's all been done in animals and two different animal models. But we've been able to show that once we do give these animals our drug, the immune response generated is much less. So we have the opportunity then to um, administer multiple doses very safely without uh, risking some of the immune responses that have um, been problematic and quite dangerous actually clinically. Thank you, Janine. It's, uh, it sounds like there's uh, some very exciting work going on, you know, both within your company and more broadly in, in this, this area. So this is really great news. Um, I, I know, Tina, you wanted to add something to something. Oh, I, I was just going to hop in a little bit on mm -hmm. newborn screening. There's, there is actually a recommended uniform screening panel that's recommended by Health and Human Services. And in order to be added to that panel, which most states pick up, the disorder has to have some sort of treatment or some sort of effective manner of, of dealing with the disorder and to be added. Um, the challenge with that is those states pick up those disorders, but the challenge is that they add disorders one at a time. And when you have 7,000 disorders, it's hard to get a treatment for them. And then there's the quandary of, if you did whole genome sequencing on everyone, then you would pick up all these super rare diseases that there might not be a, a treatment for, but you would know how many people there were with it, or you would know where to find those individuals if a new treatment came up. But because they don't do things like that, that's where, especially with gene-targeted therapies, you're, you sort of hit this gap because you sort of need to screen everyone to find them because they are so rare, but you can't screen everyone for it because you don't have a treatment for it. But you can't develop a treatment right. until you find them all. So, so yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's the challenge with yeah. the newborn screening. I just right, and you, so you're talking about whole genome sequencing for newborns. So ev every child, or even that. I, I mean, in the future, I, I think that there are a lot of things that would have to go into place in order to do that. Mm. Um, we would have to learn how to call variants better. We would need a whole lot more genetic counselors. Mm. We would need people to be in, able to interpret. I, I think we can't, if that did happen, we could find answers for a lot of diseases, but there are a lot of things that need to be in place in the pipeline to support that. Mm -hmm like people and jobs and knowledge and sharing of information and pooling information. So mm -hmm. that's an, a dream world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you don't mind, I can add sure. to that as well. Um, so I, we don't, yes, the cost of sequencing has gone way, way down and um, uh, it's not yet accessible to, to everyone and still we don't, we aren't able at this point to sequence the entire genome for every type. child board. It's just not feasible. Um, and even if we could, we wouldn't know what a lot of it meant. And I think that's what Tina was alluding to. You know, we've identified certain diseases where we know exactly um, what's causing them if they're if if it is a genetic disease it's caused by a change in a particular gene but you can have changes in a particular gene and one person will have a very severe um, 
version of the disease and another person will only have a mild version and yet they've got the same changes. So biology is redundant. And for that reason alone, if we had the entire genome sequenced, we wouldn't know what to do with most of it. You know, so for now we focus on those that we know or, you know, those parts of the genome that we know or suspect could be causing a disease and focus on those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Viviana? Um, I would just like to say that um, considering the final aim to have uh, a medicine to, to for, for a patient, we need to have from one hand as quick as possible because sometimes advanced therapies, including gene therapies, represent the unique opportunity to cure the patients. Let's think about, we have gene therapies, advanced therapies for diseases having only symptomatic drugs, so no curative drugs. We have very often as unique alternative treatment of label medicines with all the consequences. So we really need to have advanced therapies, gene therapies, for patients as quick as possible. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we need to ensure that patients have, again, a safe and involved quality drugs. And this is the role, the unfortunate sometimes role of the regulators that need have this role and need to ensure patients having this drug. The problem is that these are the most challenging drugs. We need great more um, and more expertise. And another thing important thing that we have no pills. We have cell, we have genes. So we need, uh, we have another challenge that is to have uh, equipment and facilities at each level, a regional level, a local level to can provide patients with this drug. And I think that this, that this is one, another great challenge to have this um, product really widespread. Thank you. Thanks, Viviana. So uh, there's one other topic um, that I wanted to touch on before we, we get to the end of this, and that's uh, orphan drugs. So it's something I mentioned uh, at the top of the, the webinar. Uh, I, I, if our audience doesn't understand what orphan drugs are, maybe, Tina, maybe I can come to you to, to describe that. And the other question I had is the, the Orphan Drug Act in the U.S. was passed in 1983, which is almost 40 years ago now. Yeah. And I'm interested to know if you feel it's been successful at driving research into treatments for rare disease. Um, so, so orphan drugs don't necessarily need to be in rare diseases. Orphan drugs can be treating neglected diseases. So a lot of people could have it, but basically it's, it's not in the best interest financially of a company to invest money into working in an area where there might be only a few people who need it, or it might be a part, unfortunately, a part of the world that can't afford it. Mm -hmm. So that's where the incentives came from the FDA and the government to push people into that area and that arena to work on those um, 
treatments. Um, it's been 40 years. Um, it could have done a lot more, but it also could have done a lot less. You know, it, it's hard to say that whatever has come from it. So, I mean, I have some numbers and it's the, the drug between 1983 and 2019, 5,099 drugs and biologics received orphan designation. Um, the top three areas that, that are receiving orphan designations are oncology, cancer. So that's if you are a lumper or splitter, it's like each cancer could be rare because right. if you start looking at individualized mm -hmm. medicines, everyone's tumor is a little bit different and right. how you treat it and how you adjust the drugs for it. So we've actually, for rare diseases, we've learned a lot from cancer. Mm -hmm. And then neurology is the other one and then infectious disease. And the one area that recently has started to come up is um, the pediatric diseases. Mm -hmm. So we haven't cured all the problems, but it's better than us having nothing and no incentives as, mm -hmm. as of this time. So maybe in the future things could be different or modified, but, or could have worked faster, but mm -hmm. you know, there's no guarantee with any ideas that we, we have did mm -hmm. something. <laughs> um, so Viviana, do you have any, any thoughts from the European perspective on this? So um, what the, um, the, the orphan medicines, uh, need specific support from institutions, uh, from the governments. Otherwise, they are likely to be not considered for, from companies and researchers uh, to be developed because the incomes coming from their selling would not compensate the efforts made to develop them. Uh, we heard about methodological issues, uh, economical issues, ethical issues, and so on. Of course, these challenging become more and more uh, when dealing with children. So uh, we need uh, ad hoc uh, legislation as the, 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 the US uh, um, was pioneer on 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 this, and then we have other legislation across uh, around the world, like the European uh, orphan regulation that came into force in two thousand. Uh, that is more or less the um, it's uh, it shares similarities with the American legislation, and as Tina said. Um, the Orphan Drug Act, as well as the European Orphan Regulation, considers incentives not only for drugs for rare diseases, but also for medicines in specific fields where there is no economic interest. Um, yes, I can say that uh, both the, or, uh, the European legislation and the American ones are successful. Um, we demonstrated in 2017 that they both push for um, a huge um, number of medicines for the disease patients in almost all disease areas, also for children, even if uh, there are still areas of unmet medical needs. We have, we still have uh, rare diseases with no treatment option, especially for the youngest uh, children. 
or even in some specific um, therapeutic areas. So uh, um, the legislation is anyway able to uh, accompany the, the development, the innovation and so on as the Orphan Drug Act, please, uh, Tina, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was able and has been able to do. We have in America tissue agnostic products for rare diseases. Uh, we have molecularly targeted medicines for children as well. Um, and the European Union is trying to do the same because in the European Union there is the uh, acknowledgement of the, the existing of these areas of highest unmet medical need and uh, so we um, we have for that we we have incentives for companies as well as research programs for pushing the development in these specific areas thank mm -hmm. you so it, it still it seems like although a lot of progress has been made there is still a, a lot to do uh, in this in this area <laughs> slow progress. slow slow okay great well um unfortunately we're going to have to leave our discussion there I, I wish we could have spent another hour talking about this it's been really fascinating speaking to all of you um i wanted to thank you so much for the very informative and, and stimulating conversation uh, and for taking the time out of your busy schedules to help us uh, understand this topic a little bit better uh, a reminder to our viewers that you can see a recording of this webinar as well as all previous events in the series at webinar.org, uh, sorry, science.org slash webinars. Uh, this webinar is the third in a series of six that is running this year, so look out for future events in the coming weeks. Uh, if you'd like to send us your thoughts on this webinar, please feel free to email webinar at aaas.org. Thank you once again to our fantastic panel and to Foundation Ibsen for enabling this conversation through their kind sponsorship. Goodbye, everyone. Mm -hmm.